the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. We're back in London this week where the brave new world of post-Brexit politics moves to turbocharge the UK economy via the introduction of 10 new free ports is keeping the domestic UK shipping sector alive with speculation as they await news of a government reshuffle this week. We're joined by both the UK Major Ports Group and the British Ports Association to discuss the implications for shipping. But before we get there, I want to take a look across the channel, specifically towards Brussels. Uh, I'm joined this week by our regulatory newshound, Anastasios Adamopoulos. Welcome to the podcast, Anas. Hello, Richard. You're heading out to Brussels uh, next week for for various discussions, but uh, one of the main topics on the agenda is, of course, going to be the European Union's approach to decarbonisation. You've been writing about this uh, quite extensively over the last uh, week or so. Shipping lobbies have uh, criticised the EU proposal for lacking understanding of shipping, I guess, is their, is their um, suggestion. Jutta Paulus, the European Parliament's maritime emissions rapporteur, wants to put uh, shipping under the EU's emissions cap and trade system, known as the emissions trading scheme. The proposed rules uh, are going to require political scrutiny before approval, but if it does get anywhere near becoming a reality, this could potentially be seismic. This is going to mm-hmm. affect thousands mm-hmm. of ships, uh, regardless of their flag, uh, and is going to have a significant impact. And interestingly, they are using a baseline in their measurements uh, that is different from the conversation we are having within the International Maritime Organization. Now, that may sound like a minor detail, but that is a really significant development, isn't it? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, that baseline issue that you mentioned is crucial. But, you know, to, to go a little bit further back. We are now seeing in 2020 what uh, the commission, effectively the new commission, had vowed to do in late 2019, which is to basically regulate shipping emissions uh, as far as it concerns EU ports and ships that use them. Now, this proposal or this, yeah, this proposal, I guess, that you say that uh, the rapporteur has, has drafted you know, the crucial, there are many, many elements in there that are important, but perhaps, you know, the most uh, crucial one is this idea of reducing carbon intensity by of ships that use EU ports by at least 40% um, by 2030 compared to 2018. Mm. And that's important because the IMO has a very similarly worded target as far as 2030 is concerned, but the baseline is 2008. You know, that's the year... Uh, that they also use for other targets they have. But it's important because 2018 would, you know, using 2018 as a baseline would first and foremost mean a much more intense reduction and it would require much more intense effort from ships. It's also important because it clearly deviates the position between the EU and the IMO. And, and, you know, even though the EU uh, diplomatically saying, yes, we absolutely support the the uh, the IMO, if this were to pass the way it does, this is a clear deviation as far as who sets the more stringent requirements um, and, and from that perspective. Uh, but there is still some way to go. This requires scrutiny from both the parliament mm. and the council, which is where we expect a lot of the opposition will be voiced, uh, you know, particularly from traditionally shipping nations like Greece, Cyprus and Malta, we could see uh, Stone's op- opposition to this kind of, of measure if, 
you know, shipping organizations do prove to have sufficient reach to do that. Mm. Uh, the commission has already been vocal about its intention to include shipping in the ETS. So th this is a crucial parameter that has changed within the past two years. So it's going to be a really interesting year to see because remember, in this proposal, the rapporteur suggests effectively that these rules should apply to ships starting in 2021. And yeah. that is the significant part here. Mm. The, I mean, in many ways, this is an age-old dance. The European Union um, using its leverage effectively to go above and beyond what the International Maritime Organization is prepared to do is mm -hmm. not a new story. They've, right. they've, they've, they've danced this dance for a long time, and to some extent, it generally ends up with uh, a degree of compromise. And mm. the fact that we have a 2050 deadline uh, set by the IMO right. left many people thinking that we were focused on an international target. Right. The fact that the European Parliament is now coming back and trying to chief them along with a much more stringent set of requirements is significant. But the question remains, is this political leverage or is this uh, something that the shipping in industry needs to concern itself with uh, as a possible reality? I think it's the latter because this time around the position of shipping within the EU environmental policy, broader environmental policy, uh, it's just, it, I think in Brussels it's seen as just another piece of a much broader strategy mm. uh, or approach to emissions. So it's going, it seems, you know, on paper a lot more difficult to see why or how they would make an exception for a single industry, especially now that, you know, you have a commission and a parliament that still want to regulate shipping and emissions, even though this time around we have an IMO strategy, mm. which is them basically saying, look, we appreciate that, but we still want to do our own thing. The last time this ETS discussion was had and was temporarily paused, was late 2017. We didn't have an IMO strategy then. Yeah. Now we do. So the fact that we do and they're still going ahead with this means that this is a very real possibility. And I think, you know, it's important for us, both from us as observers and the industry itself to focus on the IMO because that's where we have a concrete sort of action thus far. Yeah. But you shouldn't be caught by surprise if something pretty radical happens from the EU side as well. And this isn't just an EU problem if this goes ahead. This will have implications internationally, yeah. regardless yeah. of how they apply this. Yeah, absolutely, because this is there's nothing to do with um, your flag or your crew or where your company is based. It's solely if you have a ship of 5,000 gross tons and above that uses EU ports. Mm. Um, this is based on a database that already exists. It's existing publicly since July 2019 that holds... Uh, emissions and fuel consumption data of, vessels that you, of these vessels that use EU ports. Um, we've seen this database, the MRV database, have, have issues with consistency last year, but I'm not sure that's going to stop the EU from pursuing this policy. No. I mean, the, the industry reaction to date is predictably against this move. I mean, yeah. how would you characterize the industry response? They, they're effectively looking at it as, you know, possibly derailing the IMO efforts and, and, and obviously an, an onerous financial burden, I guess. Yeah, I think that captures it well. And I think prior maybe to this uh, report, the language, in my opinion, was sometimes a little bit softer, but now it's a bit more direct, saying, mm -hmm. you know, that if you do this, this will be a real threat to global progress. And what they're referring to is the sort of spirit of collaboration that 
they believe the IMO strategy has fostered within the IMO mm. um, that is supposedly enabling everyone to move together. The EU side broadly, or the EU itself saying, might be thinking, you're not moving fast enough. Mm. Um, and the counter argument to what the industry associations are saying as far as the diplomacy aspect is actually if you force something, you know, the, the prospect something a lot more intense against someone, they might agree to something more radical more easily. That remains to be seen. You know, that's the very difficult argument to, to resolve mm. uh, today. And, that, you know, their other argument is you're regionalizing emissions policy. Um, you are setting rules on, on companies and people that really, you know, have nothing to do with the EU except using ports. Um, so there's the financial aspect of it too. Because th- what this policy also envisions is the creation of this fund that would generate revenues through carbon allowances, which would then be used for R&D, you know, and, th- and there is the question of, okay, who benefits from that? Is it mm-hmm. just Europe? Is it European companies? So these are, you know, these are questions that are going to have to be addressed further down the line, but I still think this is a very real prospect. Mm. It also puts the practical, uh, the practicalities of an emissions trading scheme back squarely yeah. into yeah. the debate. You know, we hadn't... Uh, really considered what this looks like since mm. uh, the IMO uh, debates collapsed several years ago mm. where we were considering, you know, should this be a bunker levy? Should this be a fund? Should mm. this be a trading scheme? And those debates collapsed precisely because nobody had any real confidence that we could roll out an international scheme that's actually going to, uh, you know, allow everybody to operate this on an international basis. Now, right. In the interim, the debate has changed politically speaking, but there are still concerns about the practicalities of a trading scheme. Now, mm. the European trading scheme has been rolled out for other sectors um, with varying degrees of success. Mm-hmm. But the main concern, as far as I understand it, from the shipping point of view, is that there just isn't the sophistication within the shipping industry to be able to actually access these trading schemes. Mm. These are quite complex trading schemes. And while there's every you know likelihood that a company like Maersk or MSC, you know, sizable international operations, will be able to create a department that deals with trading. Your average five ship owner is going to struggle with mm. the complexities of how to account for emissions and involve themselves in a European trading scheme. It is necessarily quite complex. Yeah, I agree, and I think the EU as if you know, if this were to go forward and, and shipping were to be included in this cabin trade system, mm. um, the EU would have to take responsibility for that. You know, because there is that question of it's a very real question of burden, mm. of, of uh, administrative burden, of more more paperwork for companies. You know, you know, shipping companies are traditionally small, mm. like you mentioned. So that's a real, real issue that the EU is going to have to deal with if they want to take the reins on this and say, okay we are now regulating this area as well. And another layer of complexity in an already increasing series of regulations for the shipping industry to deal with, of course. This is not a single issue. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be really interesting to see if this were to come about, the kind of impact it could potentially have on shipping routes. Mm. Because, you know, not to get too much into the detail of how this would work, but the emissions the EU counts in its database have to do with voyages to the EU and voyages from as well as voyages between EU ports. Mm. So, you know, presumably, if you have a way to avoid the long-haul long haul voyage into the EU or out of the EU, 
so as to show smaller emissions count, fuel consumption, etc. Mm. Um, it, you know, if that is feasible, it would not be outlandish to think that operators are going to start adopting those kinds of methods to to evade at least, or I don't, maybe evade is a strong word, but to um, to have a basically, basically a different emissions. Okay. So in terms of practical next steps, a number of meetings coming up within the IMO and outside. You're off to Brussels next week to be talking to various people um, during uh, the European Shipping Week. Yeah, there is, you know, there's a schedule out. Obviously, it's very much dominated by the emissions and the environmental question. So I think it will be an interesting week in Brussels because it will be the first public outing of all stakeholders since this uh, report was published. And I think they will, people will have a chance to sort of air out their their grievances and concerns. Mm. And beyond that, you know, I think the next two months will be crucial for shipping environmental regulation because next week we also have the subcommittee on uh, pollution prevention response where there's a big discussion where there's a big discussion on the impact of very low sulfur fuels on black carbon emissions. Some NGOs have are calling for... Uh, prohibition of certain blends because based on a study that suggests certain VLSFO blends actually in, um, are actually worse for black carbon emissions compared to, to fuel oil. So that's going to be another big week. Uh, and then we have two weeks of effectively decarbonization negotiations, end of March, early April, um, culminating to the MEPC in early April, where we could perhaps see the first short-term measure to reduce emissions being agreed to. Mm. It's a hectic pace of uh, meetings coming up, but uh, we will keep you updated on the podcast and through LloydsList.com throughout. Um, For now, good luck in Brussels next week, Ennis, and uh, we will be back to you next week. Thank you. The UK government's plan to create up to 10 free ports to turbocharge trade in the wake of Britain leaving the European Union has received a mixed response from industry figures who warn that the Freeport model is probably not the silver bullet being trumpeted by some. But after a 10-week consultation on the issue was officially announced last week, after months of being trailed in the media, many of the UK's largest ports are expected to pitch their plans. I am joined this week by not one, but two of the UK ports powerhouses, Richard Ballantyne, Chief Executive of the British Ports Association, and Tim Morris, Chief Executive of the UK Major Ports Group. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Um, For our international listeners, um, we are going to um, try as hard as we can to avoid too much Brexit jargon, Westminster scuttlebutt and, and various other things, and keep this focused on the implications for shipping. But it's fair to say that this free ports issue, while obviously significant to the UK port sector and therefore the wider shipping industry, is to some extent wrapped up within Brexit and some internal domestic politics. But for the benefit of the listeners, give us the quick overview in terms of why you think uh, the free ports plan is quite so significant and, and, and the, the implications that we should be looking out for as a shipping industry. Um, yes, thanks, Richard. Um, I think the... The possibility of having free ports, whilst uh, not ruled out by the EU, I think the focus we've had with the referendum and the Brexit process has led to a lot of political attention in the UK on the port sector. And this is probably, it's fair to say, one of the asks of the sector. 
to uh, prioritise uh, our international gateways and uh, get them uh, into a fit state to facilitate all this new trade that's going to come post-Brexit from uh, countries outside the European Union, but also uh, be able to develop and grow uh, uh, better um, within the parameters of the UK's legislative framework. And Tim, for, again, for the benefit of international listeners, what, give us the, the view in terms of what the process is here, because just to be clear, although this has been trailed and lawyers have been covering this for some time, we're talking about a, a consultation period that was launched this week. So from here on, what happens next? So the government has launched a consultation and it is indeed a, a very broad consultation. It doesn't rule a lot out. It rules quite a lot into scope. Um, the consultation will run for 10 weeks. The government will then take a view on the responses that it has got. Um, it will then relatively quickly um, open a competition, a call for bids um, from uh, um, locations all around the UK, uh, not just the ports, but the ports and other local stakeholders, both business and public sector, to come forward with what they hope would be compelling bids that deliver on stronger gateways, regenerating communities, but also hubs for innovation and different ways of doing business. Mm. They'll then consider that those bids um, and the intention, I believe the government's intention is to designate uh, at least a, f a first set of Freeport locations before the end of the calendar year. And those intentions are going to be key to what happens next, really, because while the, the turbocharged trade headlines that were coming out and, you know, favourite uh, soundbite of Boris Johnson in the run-up to the election were probably what people were focusing on, what you mentioned there in terms of regeneration of community, uh, and some of the domestic issues in terms of the coastal communities. That's not all just down to trade. So there are political nuances here in terms of who is bidding for it. And I guess, you know, you can reduce it to a sort of fairly dichotomous sort of political uh, uh, spat in some respects. I mean, if boosting Felixstowe and Southampton, which are getting the, the main hall calls from Asia, makes economic sense, uh, if the objective is to turbocharge the economy and unleash Britain's post-Brexit entrepreneurial dynamism, as the, uh, the politicos would have it, that's one thing. But if the idea is to boost the left-behind areas and prop up red wall gains, then Humberside and Teesside are more obvious candidates. So I guess the question is, to some extent, political. Will Boris Johnson and the Department of Transport be thinking logically in terms of trade, or are they going to be blindsided by electoral advantage? And here we do go into, I'm afraid, some domestic politics. Yeah, and I think the challenge and certainly the call from industry is to try and, as far as possible, um, take, the, take the politics out of it. Mm. It is a sad fact that there are disadvantaged communities um, all around the UK's coast. This is not a simple north versus south, east versus west divide. There are communities and areas all around the UK um, many of which, not all, but many of which are in large port areas that would certainly ben benefit from stimulus to investment and prosperity in, in those areas. Mm. Our call from industry is for the government to set out its, uh, what it's looking for, its criteria for bids, what it's trying to achieve, open, give everybody a level playing field of opportunity to access um, the potential free port space, mm. um, and then rationally clearly and fairly assess compelling bids that come forward. That has to be the sustainable process going forward. And you mentioned um, uh, the politics here. It's also worth remembering, as well as those deprived areas 
uh, around England that you particularly mentioned. This is a UK-wide policy, and uh, we've got the devolved element here. So uh, this 10 um, number of free ports which the government is proposing will have to be spread around um, 125 cargo handling port areas of the UK, so uh, presumably at least one in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, as well as England, yeah. uh, and also airports who we haven't mentioned. And, and I'd say there's not as many airports as seaports, but there's still a sizable amount. So where we are slightly uncomfortable, whilst we really support the vision and the the, uh, the concept of the free ports, because that is great in our view for our sector about attracting development, investment, growth, yeah. uh, and focusing um, on the needs of the port sector, um, there are concerns that certain areas may be uh, disadvantaged or left behind if they don't get selected. Mm. And this is the point. There, I mean, ten up to ten, I think, is the the number mm-hmm. that has been touted. Uh, sounds interesting and certainly attractive for the port sector, but there are going to be areas and ports and regions that are going to be disappointed here by definition. So there, there is going to be, to some extent, some market distortion. Would we say? Well, it's quite difficult to kind of predict that yet because we haven't got a fixed vision of what the UK Freeport model will be. Mm. But in the consultation, um, the government highlights what the traditional Freeport model would be, which is uh, largely around customs deferment and you know suspending uh, things like tariff collection and other uh, and other customs related processes. And traditionally, that would be. Um, more suitable for ports that are either handling transshipment traffic or have uh, manufacturing or added value processes close by. Um, so some of our gateway ports, you know, some of the railroad ports, some of the, even some of the container ports who wouldn't necessarily do that, mm. uh, traditionally might not have seen all the benefits of that. But in the consultation as well, there are suggestions about um, fast-track planning processes for new developments and, uh, uh, and existing infrastructure that needs to be modified. Uh, and also enterprise stimulus, so low business rates for new startups, skills uh, and innovation points that Tim mentioned before. So as soon as you broaden the um, the ability of a free port to provide benefits, then it broadens their uh, appeal to a wider number of ports. I think what's important, and certainly this is something that we are stressing to government, is that free ports shouldn't be seen as the only mechanism of strengthening our predominant global gateways, i.e. our seaports, um, and addressing issues of deprivation and inequality around our coast. What you should see Freeports as is part of a strategy of of fulfilling those goals. Freeports are one dimension of it, but it's entirely possible that some of the tools in the toolbox that's described in the government's consultation can apply and should apply more broadly than just in quote-unquote free ports. Mm. So some of the the accelerated planning um, dimensions proposals, they can apply to a whole range of ports. They don't have to just sit within the free port model. And that lessens, number one, the competitive distortion, but then the all-or-nothing choice that or threat that um, you know, free ports may present to you know, communities who, who, who don't get granted free port status. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're sitting here on uh, the 12th of February uh, in advance of uh, what could potentially be a uh, reshuffle within the government. We're just into uh, Brexit territory. It's a little too early to tell in terms of any sort of major significant impact. But, I mean, broadly speaking, it feels like we are 
uh, in a positive pace as an industry. We, we finally have the engagement of government. Uh, Brexit, uh, if nothing else, has certainly woken them up to uh, the importance of the maritime sector. Do you think that Freeport's aside, we are heading in the right direction as an industry right now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the Brexit process has been quite divisive, as you could imagine. Um, and uh, there will be still, still a lot of operators in the, the port sector and the wider logistics industry have concerns about what the uh, final deal will be with the EU. But one thing I've picked up recently is that although the new government is saying some quite firm and, and, and hard things to the sector, at least it's been clear. So with that clarity, people can start to plan for whatever eventuality we'll need to uh, at the beginning of next year after our transition. And as you mentioned, I think the whole process has shone the light and given us that political attention, uh, which perhaps we hadn't had for a generation since privatisation, probably, of the UK sector. Um, and for the most part, ports have just gone on with it, you know, without government's um, interference or or assistance on various things. And they've been fiercely proud of their independence, largely. Occasionally, we've had um, some funding and other things which one or two operators have got a bit excited about because it may have distorted a bit of competition. But for the most part, uh, the ports industry is left to get on with it itself and has a governance and regulatory re regime, which it adheres to. But, but largely, it does it on its own. And, and I think that, that will probably continue. I think the policy um, substantially won't change. The UK is an island nation. This appears to have come as something of a shock to some of our politicians, <laughs> but with 95% of the UK's imports and exports arriving or departing by sea, we are very much dependent on maritime trade, the global maritime trade in our ports in order to service that trade. Um, in all the excitement about Brexit, I think it might have been somewhat overlooked that the majority of the UK's large ports already very successfully handle global trade that that traverses its ports on a number of under a number of different regulatory um, aspects. The ports will adapt; they will change. It's not going to be a walk in the park, but they will adapt and change along with the logistics industry and make sure that the UK is open for trade through Brexit and beyond. And actually, I think uh, Tim's absolutely right. I think the ports will adapt and indeed are adapting and are preparing. The, perhaps the more pressing concern is uh, is twofold. One is the readiness of the wider logistics uh, and, you know, kind of trade itself to be prepared in time, but also government to be prepared. And government has some clear uh, visions for the border at the top, but that's got to trickle down to the frontier. So it, it's, it's, I say, Tim says it's right. It's not a walk in the park, but I think the ports are... Uh, are out there in the lead and setting uh, setting the agenda for themselves. But we're looking for a bit more um, progress from both government officials and uh, the wider logistics industry. Wonderful. Uh, Richard Ballantyne, Tim Morris, thank you very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast.